the, the island makes sense in terms of how I make work that tends to be emotive and about feeling and about place and a sense of place and history, personal history, you know, nostalgia as well, I guess. In terms of Brexit, I mean, how do you make a work about that? I'm Peter Holiday, and this is The Land Behind. Join me as I go beyond the photograph in search of new and different perspectives concerning the relationship between perception and place. In this episode, I speak to the British photographer Robert Darch about his recently self-published photo book titled The Island. As a self-described artist photographer, Robert was born and raised in the Midlands. Around the year 2000, he began studying his BA in photography at Newport in South Wales, before falling seriously ill for a number of years. Upon his recovery, he found himself in the pastoral landscape of Devon, where, in 2013, he returned to study his MFA at the University of Plymouth under the guidance of the landscape photographer Jem Southam, whose mentorship has been an invaluable and deeply formative experience for Robert. By drawing inspiration from his personal life experiences, Robert's photographic practice is the pursuit of a time before. By drawing inspiration from his personal life experiences, Robert's photographic practice is the pursuit of a time before. In blurring the boundaries between the real and the imaginary, his photographs of Britain's contemporary social environment are an attempt to keep up with the unexpected twists and turns of an uncanny reality that all too often defies our comprehension. Whilst Robert's haunting images incorporate elements of surrealism, nostalgia and poetic narrative, there remains an underlying social critique implicit within them. His dystopian and forbidding vision of the British Isles, as portrayed in his latest photo book, The Island, is a visual response to the psychological impact of political events, in this case, the resulting consequences of the Brexit referendum in 2016. In these images, one also reads the same suspicion concerning technological modernity that 19th century figures such as John Ruskin and GMW Turner perceived in the rapidly changing English landscape of their own time. If you happen to find value in my conversation with Robert, please consider ordering one of the last few available copies of his photo book, The Island, by visiting his website, which I've linked in the description. These conversations are about going to places we may not have been before. So if you feel like helping me to nurture this community of different perspectives and voices, please consider supporting me on Patreon via the link in the description. Whilst I remain committed to sharing long-form, accessible, and educational content with you free of charge, your generous contribution will help me cover the expenses associated with creating this podcast. For the price of a cup of coffee, you will gain access to a range of rewards and benefits, including exclusive videos, posts, texts and recordings concerning my own life as a photographer. So, without further ado, my conversation with Robert Darch now begins. Robert Darch, uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with me this evening from Devon in England, I believe. Indeed, indeed. Thank you for the invitation. It's lovely to talk to you. Well, it's my pleasure. You grew up in the Midlands and you're now based in Devon. How do you think your upbringing in the Midlands influences your 
perception of the Devonshire landscape where you've made some of your most recent work. Tell me what your path has been like. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Obviously, it's, it's very different. So I, I grew up in the Midlands. I was born in Birmingham and then lived a bit further south in, in Worcestershire, initially for five years in, in Staffordshire, but then in, in Worcestershire to my kind of like mid to late 20s. And a small town in the Midlands, um, on the edge of the countryside, but in that kind of like Birmingham commuter belt. So very different to, to Devon and, and, and the Devon landscape. And my kind of upbringing was, was, was great, really. I mean, I had, had like a reasonable amount of freedom. Um, both my parents were, were teachers, so it, it was culturally quite rich you know we'd go to art galleries and and we'd go out into into nature and into the landscape and then you know my history is reasonably interesting in that um, I became unwell in my early 20s so I'd gone to university at Newport in Wales to study documentary photography and I had a minor stroke and then um, a diagnosis of glandular fever and then latterly ME or chronic fatigue syndrome and and then I, I was kind of away really from from photography and, and what I would um, quantify as a normal life so I was on on um, incapacity benefits for a, a period of years maybe like five or six years and then it, it came to a point where it was just too hard being in that system and I made the the tough decision to move back in with my parents uh, at which time they'd retired south which is a classic thing to do but but down to down to Devon so I moved back in with them and and then latterly over a, a period of a couple of years my my health kind of improved so my kind of personal history is 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 maybe not like a kind of normal path in, into what I'm what I'm doing now so that the two worlds feel feel very different but I think that the grounding in the Midlands was kind of really interesting you know I worked for three years before I went to university so worked a lot of different jobs um the, the longest being in a kind of builder's yard in a in a big in a big garden center um so yeah so what town was it in the Midlands where you grew up so it was Droitwich Spa which is famous for salt and the radio masts, which are at, just outside in Witchbold. It's mentioned in an episode of Blackadder. And um, Rick Mail was from Droitwich Spa, and I met him once, which was a, a lovely meeting. Um, yeah. Well, my connection to, to the Midlands is through my father, who was uh, born and raised in Coventry. Is uh, okay, it, yeah. Is it anywhere yeah. near that? It is not near Coventry, so All right. Coventry's well, my geography is maybe kind of to the east of Birmingham and Droy, which is in Worcestershire, so it's about like twenty-five miles south of Birmingham, and it's about seven miles north of Worcester. Um, so it's kind of like a small town, but there is like countryside around it, you know. And I, and I go back occasionally. It's quite interesting to go back and see how it's how it's changed. So is this uh, brownfield, brownfield landscapes or? In, in Droitwich? Yeah. Yeah, well, there is brownfield, but there's also like a small green belt 
the kind of the sort of West Midlands Greenbelt, which just ticks the bottom of the kind of just underneath Droitwich. You've got that that gap between Droitwich and Worcester. I mean, as soon as you go like um, north of Droitwich um, and hit somewhere like Bromsgrove, from Bromsgrove on, then you just get into this massive kind of like conurbation really that like bleeds into Birmingham and Wolverhampton and Dudley and all these different places you know you can you just you're just driving through towns then at that stage mm. and then how does what what kind of contrasts are there between that those brownfield industrial landscapes and the landscapes that you photograph in Devon now I mean like a huge in in a way like I, I'm much I suppose I'm drawn to these kind of pastoral landscapes mm-hmm. as opposed to industrial or or city landscapes i mean i've always you know even when i was kind of enjoying which i was always pushing out into the edges of the town and out into the countryside and, and exploring that always interested me a lot more than kind of looking inwards at, at the at the town that that sense of uh, i don't know being out or or, or exploring or, or or that kind of I don't know, it kind of felt like sort of freedom to me. And and Devon has that feel. I mean, it's a really interesting county. It's like a, a large county and has lots of, I'd say, varying landscape. You know, the only thing it's really missing is is mountains, you know, and, and I guess we have Dartmoor kind of that is, is the closest. But, you know, you have like pastoral landscapes, fields, lakes, you've got the coast, you know, it's just a really interesting place to to live and, and make work. And so what age were you when you had your stroke? I was 22. So that must have been very unusual for that age. Yeah, it was it was really unusual. Um, I mean, the diagnosis was like a transient ischemic attack. So it, it's like a minor stroke. And in theory, that there's no kind of sort of lasting impact from that. But I, I ended up, I'd gone down just before the start of my second year at university to to paint my room in, in the house that we were renting that year. And I was just driving around like a, a nearby town and noticed like my vision was going in one eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was all kind of watery. And then it felt like I was drunk, like the the, the room was, or, or the everything was spinning around. And then when I got back to the house, I kind of got out of my car so that I was driving, maybe not the best thing. And and then I kind of started panicking because I didn't know what to do. Mm. I needed to lock the door, but I just would lost that. And then one of my housemates was just talking and he mentioned a microwave and and like I knew the word, but I couldn't relate the word to the object. And then I just started going downhill from there really and, and they called an ambulance and I ended up in hospital for three or four days in, in Newport. So it became quite serious. Yeah, and, and but the, the, the interesting thing, there wasn't really any kind of explanation then or any kind of answer. And then it was like a few months later when I saw the the GP at the university. I was just like, well, what what was that? And and they've and 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 she said, well, on their notes they've written a transient ischemic attack. Mm-hmm. And that was you know where I where I learned about that really. So that was quite interesting. And then. Latterly, I had like a, a diagnosis for for glandular fever. So I think it was just just a lot that was all, all at once. And I think 
I think part of it, part of a contributing factor was my level of sort of drive and ambition at that time, you know, was was sort of very, I don't know, I think I think that I think that um played some role in, in that attack, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Well and so what what you, is there any wider significant significance to that event within the meaning of the photographs that you make now? How do you think that how significant is that moment on your path, do you think? I think it is hugely significant. You know, you know, that whole experience changed me as a person and and you know that that life experience afterwards about being ill and that sense of kind of hopelessness you know really changed me you know as fundamentally as a human being so obviously that's going to change my outlook on the world and and the, the type of pictures I make I mean, I mean, so much so that that really I, I kind of had to be talked into returning to university latterly. Um, this was in 2013 to do a, a master's degree. And it was my girlfriend who just studied at, at Plymouth for a master's. And, and that's how I met her. And Jem Southern, who was, who was running the master's, they both said, you should you should do this. You should come back. Um, and, and study and at the time I was just doing bits and pieces working in an art centre working in a cinema but I was doing kind of sort of moving image documentaries for, for arts organisations and and it and it felt like a psychologically it felt like a big thing to be like okay okay maybe I'll try and do this you know maybe I'll, I'll pick up where I kind of left off sort of um, 10 years later so did the lasting, was there any lasting physical impact on your body because of the transient, is it, this transient <laughs> attack? So, I can't so remember what you said, yeah. Yeah, so it, it was so hard to tell because they were all kind of bundled together. So I had the attack. Mm-hmm. After the attack, I just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Like really unwell, still just completely dizzy all the time. So I had like a kind of, vertigo very weak in, in, in a way like and, and then so then the diagnosis of glandular fever and then chronic fatigue syndrome me and interestingly now we've had covid mm-hmm. and long covid so it's it's almost really shone a, a, a light on how um viruses impact can impact certain people and and their kind of well-being and mm-hmm. then it actually just yesterday that I wrote read an article on the Epstein-Barr virus which causes glandular fever being linked to multiple sclerosis and it's there's sort of 30 30 times higher chance of getting MS mm-hmm. if you've, if you've had the, the Epstein-Barr virus um so yeah it's um there was a huge impact but touch with now I'm okay. I think the only the only slight lag is that in terms of like doing cognitive things like reading or doing too much writing or concentrating like that, I find quite hard. Um, so is not- that 
that one reason why photography appeals to you so much? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, it, it was always something that, you know, I'd, I'd kind of fallen in love with when, when I was kind of in my, my mid-teens. But I think what appealed to me was the immediacy of photography. I think there was, you know, some history in my, in my family with my, my granddad taught um, interior design and architecture at Bristol University. So there was some, an ele- element of creativeness within the family. And I could draw a bit, but I was always kind of frustrated because I never felt like I could get that good at drawing, whereas there was an immediacy to photography that it just allowed me to create something and kind of capture what I wanted, you know? I still get like a huge amount of, of enjoyment just from taking pictures mm-hmm. that's kind of fundamental really to, to, to my my practice that's a bit that i enjoy you know I, I love it's so exciting you know even now and and even you know having made that transition from film to to, to digital you know I, I get so much pleasure from from doing it and what was it like studying under jim southern he's somewhat of a heavyweight in British landscape photography. What did you learn from him? Well, it was brilliant studying under Jem. I was really fortunate um, that when I was doing my BA at Newport, I was introduced to his work and he was one of the few British photographers whose work resonated with me because it felt quite different. He was working in colour and it tended to be the American photographers working in colour and he made these beautiful, quiet, poetic images and I thought that's what I want to do that's how I would like to see the world and it's kind of interesting how sort of sort of I don't know about fate but but how you kind of weave your way through life you know it's kind of happenstance that I ended up living in Devon and then I found out I was literally living around the corner from Jem maybe like two or three minutes away from him and then I met my girlfriend who was studying with him at university so all those things kind of came together and so it was just a a really lovely experience to to study with him and and have his guidance and especially because he he retired like from teaching like a few years later you know I mean he's a a great sort of inspiration in terms of you know making work for me and also now, you know, it's really interesting how he's he's shooting a lot on digital, not not reinventing the the work still has the same kind of feel and atmosphere, but he's you know he's he's kind of to me he's just excited and yeah. and, and eager and he's experimenting and trying different things and and making work that is really interesting. I mean, how often do you see photographers that? reach the, the latter part of their lives and, and, and you feel like they're not really trying anymore and, and they're kind of, you know, but I, I, you know, don't, don't have that with Jem at all. I think it's great. Yeah. But he, he's, he's known for these large format color pictures. Yeah. And, known for yeah. and as you, as you mentioned, um, traditionally at least film as well, he was working on large format film. Yeah. Yeah. You've spoken about how you made the switch from film to digital and you're also working in black and white. So why, why the distance from that, from the way of working that Jem is so recognised for? 
Well, I made a decision. I can remember when one of my friends, Eva, she was teaching at Falmouth University and she'd borrowed like a Nikon D800 from the university and she was like, look, you can take pictures in like a five by four crop and you can see it. You can shoot through the the viewfinder in a five by four crop. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. That, to me, that kind of changed everything. So I bought like a Nikon D800 and started photographing with that and then latterly upgraded to, to the D850. Large format is a very slow process. And I think it's easier if you're predominantly working with landscapes, which Gem is. And you, you maybe only shoot so many frames a year. Whereas I guess I was taught at Newport in documentary photography and producing a lot, taking a lot of pictures. And that's how I like to work. So digital gives me that freedom to photograph a lot, but I, I more or less treat the camera like using like a medium format camera. And then costs also comes into it. You know, I can't afford to be paying for film to, mm -hmm. to shoot work, you know. So, so for me, digital works really well. And in terms of black and white, you know, I shot a lot of work before in color and I probably used to enjoy shooting more in color, but now it's a, a mix, but it took me, it did take me a while to be able to re-see pictures in black and white, you know. I thought it would be easy. Yeah, that's quite interesting. You know, I had like this kind of slightly, I'm not arrogant, but kind of like, oh, black and white's easy because with color, you've really got to think about, it's not just the light and the, and the form, you've got to make sure the colors all work together and black and white's just like, just light and, and form. But, you know, I was taking pictures and I was thinking, ah, oh, you know, it looks better in color, it looks better in color. And it, it was only really when I started making the pictures for the island that it clicked. And I was just like, yeah, this works better in black and white. This is black and white, mm -hmm. you know. But it took, it took a period of time. And I can remember when I was doing my master's, kind of wanting to try and experiment and do something in black and white and trying to force it. And it just, it just wasn't happening. But then when it was right for the project, then, then, then that made sense for the island. Mm -hmm. And so your girlfriend, or at least your girlfriend at the time, also studied at uh, Plymouth University. Yeah, yeah. So my good, still, still girlfriend, um, Jessica Lennon, she studied at Plymouth University and she teaches at Plymouth University. So she's part of the, the academic staff there and she's still making work but I think she's moving not away from photography but she's incorporating lots of different aspects into her work like working with kind of natural pigments and painting and mm -hmm. making a lot and, and combining that with photography. You spoke about how your encounter with James Southam and your encounter with your now girlfriend is somewhat an expression of of your fate in the world yeah how how much is the theme of fate prevalent in the photographs that you make i guess i guess a lot i suppose i suppose especially in the context of 
context of the island. So the... Yeah, the island is... uh, Well, it's essentially what we're here to speak about, I guess. And I'd like to stress that for our listeners, uh, it's a beautiful book. And as far as I know, there are still a few copies available. So um, please consider checking it out. Um, Thanks for the plug. I didn't even have to give myself. Yeah, tell us about the island and perhaps how the theme of fate plays plays into these images. They're black and white images and uh, they're, very, they're very bleak. They have a dystopian apocalyptic feel to them. When I first looked through the book, as I previously told you this, they reminded me of um, the film Children of Men by Alfonso Cuaron, I think his name is, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, in Spanish. Sounds but, good uh, to me. Yeah, how, well, tell us about this project. So it, it had a kind of, in some ways, like a very slow genesis that... And I'd completely forgotten about this part of the genesis. And it was only when I was like researching something else and I looked back on some old notes from maybe my MFA that initially I'd become interested in Portland Island, which is like a small island off um, Weymouth in Dorset. People have photographed there before. It's got a really interesting atmosphere. You know, it's part of England, but to me it feels slightly different it has this kind of maybe not otherworldly but to me it kind of feels maybe a bit like northern france and there's a couple of prisons on there lots of quarries some active some disused and i started taking pictures there just walking around looking for things that interested me making work and and at the time i had this kind of idea like could i make work kind of about england here on this island and relating it to Europe. And this was pre-Brexit and pre-vote and pre-talk of Brexit. And it, it didn't really come to much, I think, because it was it was a bit of a, a drive to get to, to the island. And, and I didn't really have like a clear idea of what I wanted to do. So that was one starting point. And then Brexit happens. We had the Brexit vote. And... I just felt like a real heaviness, like we'd we'd lost something. Like it was a bad decision. And I couldn't pull myself out of this kind of sort of slump, really. And, you know, obviously I've not been hugely interested in politics in the past. And I don't tend to make work that I feel is overtly political, but I felt like I wanted to respond in some way to this so it was that kind of feeling of heaviness so that was like another bit of the jigsaw puzzle and then for a long time growing up in the midlands i'd been playing around with the idea of taking pictures and and you know kind of naively just calling it sunday these kind of very bleak sort of monochromatic sort of like uh, melancholic images so I had that kind of idea going around with the idea from the, the Morrissey song, um, every day is like Sunday, every day is silent and grey. Um, <laughs> so, so so there's all these different, for me quite often like a project's like a kind of jigsaw puzzle and you've got these pieces and they kind of 
come together. So that's three big pieces that that, that kind of came together. And then, you know, I also started relating what I felt would be the experience of young people now, as opposed to my experience in the kind of mid nineties, you, you know, coming into new labor, um, Brit pop, Brit art, off the back of grunge. Felt yeah, like that, all that sense of, there was a sense of hope. Yeah, a sense yeah. of hope. You know, it was pre kind of climate crisis or talk of climate crisis. So, so for and you know, old people will always bleat on about their, you know, generation being the best. But but I feel like it, it might have been the last kind of generation in, in terms of teenagers having that kind of hope, you know, like everything feels exciting. You know, you've you've had my whole life, you know, Thatcher came into power in the year I was born. So it was like 18 years coming out of that. So that sense of hope, so that played into it as well. And and the text in the book relates to that, kind of my experience of growing up. So I'm relating that to how I feel like life could be like for young people now. So you had all those elements coming together to to, to make the island. Remind me of the original question. Um, it was it was it was, it was um, in what way is the theme of yeah, fate yeah. related to the island? And then, so, in a sense, if I can just make a quick comment, sure. Uh, you describe how um, it it wasn't there was no talk of Brexit when you, when you started this project. Yeah, but it, whether or not. Ex- whether explicitly or implicitly, it would become a project. It was fated to become a project about Brexit, in a sense. Sure. sure. So it's almost like, in a way, that was the the missing piece was the the Brexit, and then all the other elements came together. I mean, the, the projects are very much something that exists in my head. You know, and then it's like I, then I start visualizing images that I might want to take or people that 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 I might want to to, to photograph with, and then you, I just start pulling all the images together, and, and, and certain scenes reveal themselves to you as well. Of course, and and always there's a there's a, a definitive atmosphere, always a very specific atmosphere to a series or or a a body of work I make. That's something that's interesting to me and then also in terms of faint one of the the young women i photographed daisy she said when i kind of released the book she said actually it's kind of quite prophetic and and it it's all the more relevant now in the kind of post-brexit era in in terms of kind of what a shit show brexit has been and yeah and also we had kind of covid in the sort of intervening years you know mm-hmm. this, this definite sort of darkness and kind of horror in that, the island that could have been prophetic of that not that i could have ever seen that happening. yeah this critique of of the world after thatcher is i feel as if it's such a big part of british documentary photography both in scotland and in england because yeah. it affect, affect, and, and in wales too um well, yeah, in these industrial cities that were left without any sort of provision um, after the industries closed down. 
Of course, yeah. we've come even further than Thatcher now, as we, as you <laughs> explain, it's now post-Brexit. But, you know, what kind of future do these pictures from the island envision? Is there a future in the island? And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, is there, maybe respond to that first. And I, I think, like, I suppose we shouldn't think about the island depicted in this book as a kind of literal place or, or an, an attempt to photograph a place that exists. I mean, I very much see it as, in, in terms of my project, as always like a sliding scale, and I feel like this is perhaps the loosest body of work, that it's not specifically located mm-hmm. in a place. You know, so I've photographed predominantly in the southwest where I live, but I also went back to the Midlands to make work, which I felt was really important because of mm. my history there. But then, and this is something that I haven't done before, I maybe had some existing images that I felt like, oh, this would work really well. So I pulled in an image that I'd photographed, you know, while I was on commission for something, um, a couple of images that I took when I was in Germany, just outside Berlin in like an old abandoned factory. And I thought they'll sit really well in the atmosphere of this work. So in that sense, it's the much loosest series I've done. You know, it's not like where everything's photographed in mid and North Devon and it's all people just doing their thing. And, and, you know, it's just photographed in in one specific area. Um, So it was really about kind of, atmosphere really and and in 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 the wider sense in terms of where we're going as a society you know i sit on the kind of realist to slight pessimist in terms of you know the things are i'm looking that road so your your psychological mindset is perhaps not as bleak as the images in the island might suggest oh no no i mean not you know I don't know. I feel I feels like at the moment in, in terms of like global politics, climate crisis, it feels quite tense. Mm-hmm. I think maybe like the next 30 or 40 years could be quite interesting. You know? Well, there's a real, that's the real historical rel- relevance of your work though. Um, it's deeply poetic. Uh, it's open to interpretation yeah, at the same time, there is an underlying social critique to it, but it's yeah. qu- it's quiet. It's not um, it's not telling you what to think. It's it's providing you with a mood and an emotion. Exactly, exactly. And and I was really thinking about that. I mean, the the island makes sense in terms of how I make work that tends to be emotive and about feeling and about place and a sense of place and history, personal history, you know, nostalgia as well, I guess. And in terms of Brexit, I mean, how do you make a work about that? It would have been very easy for me to be like, you know, fuck all these people that voted for Brexit, they're idiots, what were they doing? What were they thinking about? <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, that, that's, that's... I Only in the past few years have I learned not to not to take those people too seriously. And and I mean, what I mean by that is forgive them because well, yeah. I have no, I have no idea what their motivations or their starting points was yeah. in life or 
what experiences that they've had. You know, it's it's they're they're a closed book to me, and I just have to receive, try and receive everyone with an open heart. Of course, and 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 that's one of the reasons that I wouldn't make that kind of work. You know, my experience growing up in the Midlands, members of my family voted for Brexit, voted for Boris Johnson. You know, I was, I guess, the only person in my kind of sort of left-wing sort of Devon when I was living in Exeter bubble that was just like, I think we might actually vote for it, just from, like, my experience mm-hmm. of growing up in the Midlands. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, this is shame. You, you know, society is completely... Um, you know, divided. That's that's a problem. People just exist in their bubbles. But you know, I thought mm-hmm. this could this could happen. You know, so I kind of I understand people's motivations for voting Brexit. I mean, not that I agree with it. So so you know, I could never make a work that was judgmental. I mean, there's a slight bit of judgment that comes into the text that I wrote in in the book, but. I just don't feel like I want to be that person. Yeah, absolutely. Because everyone's pointing fingers at the moment, and that's what's yeah. completely wrong. Absolutely. I've had so many no- com- conversations like this myself, and I think that's what defines documentary photography for me as well, that sense of being open, of being attentive to to other people that you might not agree with, but that doesn't mean that you have to be the worst enemies yeah exactly you know, it, does, it does not mean that you have to draw blood with each other yeah yeah and 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 this is the issue i mean and and i think that as we move forward i can't see a way that society is going to come back from this this fracturing i mean even kind of within like the left they're arguing with each other and in the right they're arguing even within like absolutely <laughs> It's just, it's insane. And and I always, I float around somewhere in the middle, but, you yeah, know? But there's a, comp- it's almost like there's on both sides, there's a competition on both sides of the spectrum. Um, I, I even, uh, I try and see beyond that spectrum now, but uh, on both sides of the traditional left-right spectrum, it's almost as if there are people trying to prove that they're more right-wing or more left-wing than their their immediate allies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, so. it, it's it's insane. And it, yeah, I just really, I I also struggle, I also struggle if people take such fundamental stances. Yeah, ideological stances. Yeah, ideal, yeah. Ideal, in in terms of like how how are you def, how do you definitively know that you are right? But there's and there's a sense. There's a certain violence to that way of thinking when you impose your when you impose your righteousness onto a world. Sure. There's a certain violence to that to that way of understanding the world. But it but it comes down to like the kind of narcissism of individuals in that I think this, therefore I am right. And Absolutely. And there's a lot of that. And I think taking it back to the documentary photograph, I think that's why when I spoke to Alice and when I spoke to Shan, when I spoke to Richard Bevan um, in, in the last one, in the last podcast that I recorded, and even in the first one that I did with Simon Murphy, all 
perhaps it's by virtue of the fact that we all identify somewhat as documentary photographers, but there's this, there's a real emphasis on being open and listening and being attentive and waiting and being patient with a situation, with other people. Uh, I'm sure you know what it feels like to wait in a landscape for, for the mist to clear or the mist to close in, for example. And and I try and extend that principle to my relationships with others too. You know, Um, we can't fault someone for being right or wrong, really. You know, we, 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 we all, we know, we understand ourselves. We come to understand ourselves through each other and through the world and being open to it. And I think I've been, lately I've been uh, thinking a lot about environmental portraiture and reading a lot, um, reading a philosopher called Emmanuel Levinas. And he spoke about the phenomenon of the face-to-face encounter. And it's, 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 it's the opposite of being interested in oneself. It's about the, the other person um, represents something infinite because you can never understand their starting point or you can, you can, you understand yourself in relation to them, but you can never understand where they come from. You can pretend you do, but you really have no idea. And that's why being open to them and being open to the infinitude of, of, of the other person that faces you. And the face also represents that which asks us to respond and asks us to answer for ourselves and to draw an account of ourselves and explain ourselves. So there's an, there's an ethical uh, dimension to that philosophy, a real deep ethical dimension. And if I'm thinking of taking a, uh, you can even apply this to landscapes, you know, the landscape that moves in front of us, um, the landscapes in, in this, in this book, the island, you have to, they, they also ask us to respond, you know, the milieu of Britain at the moment is asking you to respond. And this book, the island is your response. Sure. And it's, and, and you're right. It, it, when you're, Photographing with people, it's about that relationship between you and them. And and quite often I see it as a a collaboration as opposed to me photographing someone. Again, depending on the work and depending on the project, there's, there's a sliding scale. But for the island, you know, I would meet up with people and we'd go out and we'd spend a day out together and and we'd take pictures. You know, I'd maybe have an idea about where I wanted to photograph with them, but you know, it was a collaboration in that sense. It wasn't like I was going somewhere and they were doing something and I was taking pictures for them. And and it was in, interestingly really not not until maybe like a few years ago that I really started thinking about that psychology of taking pictures and and the that quietness of photographing someone and and also that intimacy you, you know and, and how different photographers will get different things from photographing people because of how they respond to the person mm-hmm. photographing them and and for me there's a lot of silence and stillness you know we'll talk and chat a lot when we're driving in the car or when we're going between locations but when I'm taking pictures 
there's just no talking and it's almost like you're just prolonging that kind of silence and and taking pictures and i've been around photographers that just yapping all the time when they're like and i'm like oh my god you know just let the person be you know and and i almost kind of want the person to just kind of relax and and i don't know go somewhere and that's for me that's when you get the pictures that that Mm -hmm. start working that you know you can for me you can contrive a situation where you're putting two people together you know maybe daisy and will there were a couple at the time in, in this project and you're photographing with them for the day but then you, you know you end up getting a, a picture that feels very intimate and feels very natural and it doesn't feel like something that's been staged mm-hmm. and that's what all interests me across all of my work whether I'm arranging to photograph with people or whether I'm photographing people at work or in, in the landscape, I want, I don't want the photos to feel forced or staged. I want people to kind of question, is this real? Is it staged? Is it, you know, is this, is this documentary? And, and myself, you know, the island, like I probably wouldn't call documentary, but other people have said it's documentary, like curators or, people in the industry so it's like okay it's fine you know if you're calling it documentary then that's okay but it's maybe in terms of how documentary has evolved you know it's it's yeah. i guess it's much more subjective yeah and, and it's evolved into a spectrum between fact and fiction yeah yeah and but, then, but, that was, but that was always the case you know this kind of age-old myth of like and I still see photographers writing now about being objective, and I'm just like, ah, oh, there's no such thing. There's no objectivity because you're choosing what to photograph. Absolutely, yeah. You know, you're making decisions of whether it's, it's like digital film, black and white, or color. You know, stuff used to happen all the time in terms of staging and moving. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as truth. But it's that Heideggerian sentiment that there's no such thing as objectivity. And for that reason, there can be no such thing as subjectivity. <laughs> and in a sense, they collapse into each other to become what Martin Heidegger called being in the world. That yeah, yeah. we're always engaged in a world which is revealing itself to us in in new and different ways. There's no two views that are twice the same. And sure. we, we can understand that quite clearly as as photographers out in the world um, making pictures. Which, which is right. And, and quite often students will say to me like oh that idea has been done before somebody else has photographed in that place but yeah. it doesn't mean anything because we all bring our own kind of individual um i suppose reaction or relationship to that subject or to that place i mean a good example is there's a picture in the island that's just round the corner from where jem's been photographing his you know four winters project with the, the the wild birds but you know it feels like a completely different place to somebody that doesn't know the the area you know mm-hmm. so it's definitely possible to you know it all depends on the individual and and how they mm-hmm. how they see the world i've said this before in previous podcasts and uh, i borrow the idea from another philosopher called Hans Georg Gadamer who was another german philosopher and he essentially 
said that it's our questions that open up the landscapes where we find the answers. So it's going back to that um, point that you made. It doesn't really matter if it's if somebody if a, if another photographer has been there before. They're 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 coming from different different uh, different set of experiences. Um, they're most likely responding to different questions. They more they've most likely developed a different uh, style. Yeah. Um, even yeah. if even if two photographers are very similar, you know you you. you uh, you can often tell them apart, you know, if you yeah. spend enough time with their work at least. Um, but I want to talk about this image that I have in front of me, and it's an image yeah. in the book, and you can tell me what, what page it's on if, if uh, people are looking for a reference. But uh, it's a double-page spread almost, um, and it's of an individual standing on a cliffside facing the ocean, and there are clouds in the background... Uh, dark looming clouds um, as with the rest of the images in this series it's uh, bleak, it's gloomy but um, it's the opposite of uh, the attitude of the kind of stereotypical attitude at least of the Brexiteer yeah. it's somebody who's looking out at sure. the, uh, they're not looking inward yeah. so does the, is there a certain hope in this image? Of How course. do you see this image? Definitely. I mean, it, it's interesting that you've picked this image because it was one of the first locations I thought about to go and photograph. So it's in North Devon. The, the area is called the Valley of the Rocks. And I'd, I'd been there previously with my partner and it had been complete like mist or fog. And we'd sat on this rock and you couldn't see anything. You could just hear the waves crashing below. But it, it really felt like a good... I think it was initially like a starting image, but this sense of a sense of longing in a way or loss looking out in the, the young people in the book, they're individuals. And I spoke to them all about it. And, and obviously predominantly they were all sad that we'd left Europe, but there's also an element that when I photograph people, they're also kind of stand-ins for my kind of emotional response so there's a there's a sense of longing of looking out and also reinforcing this idea that we are on an island, you know. I think was it Dominic Rapp that got a bit confused and <laughs> forgot about the importance of Dover yeah. for stuff coming to the country. It's almost like he seemingly forgot that we lived on an island and everything that came in had to come <laughs> through there. So it's but- it's really like reinforcing this idea that you know, we are on an island. But it's a commemoration of that too. And, you know, there is a hopefulness there. There's a, I think there is an underlying celebration of that fact because the island has defined the British uh, landscape. Well, as far as, as far as it's been remembered, you know, as far as it can be remembered. So, you know, we are an island. It's important to remember that, but yeah. I just, I think, is, yeah, yeah. Is, is, is this project also a commemoration of that? No, I don't think so. I don't know. I think, I think like sometimes there are, sometimes there are contradictions in terms of how I make work in that I talked about 
referencing like my past and how that had this kind of positive overtone in terms of new labor Britpop, etc but I, I'm, at the same time i'm also kind of drawing on some of that melancholy of being like a kind of teenager like a young adult sort of lost love kind of winter um days in the midlands so there's there's a contradiction going on there but but for me i don't think it's a book or a, a work about hope i think this image for me is more about longing and loss and being torn stuck on the island you being know, torn like apart I'm, that's like a rupture yeah. yeah yeah you know love will tear us apart you know yeah, i feel yeah. like <laughs> i'm like stuck here now you know my my girlfriend partner's german so yeah that idea yeah. but um, know, but the horizon still invites us <laughs> yeah it is, it is, it's, yeah, it's, so I suppose, like, for me, there's always that kind of, like, I don't know, but then I'm also, like, I'm happy for people to read, as you mentioned earlier, like, to, to, to bring whatever they want to the work, you know, yeah. that's, that's great, and hearing from people when people email me or message me, and, and sometimes it's things that are really kind of on point, like, like a German photographer mentioned, like, oh, it, reminds me of bands like suede and and stuff like that and that movement and i hadn't really talked about that i was just like yeah there's a lot of that you know that, yeah. that goes in that i don't feel like that is visible to anyone it's just something that's knocking around in in my head so it's really nice when you kind of get those those responses but but equally you know i'm kind of happy for people to read what they want into the work and, and take what they they want from it um, interestingly, when the, the, the work was featured in The Guardian, and it was maybe the only time that it's kind of pushed out of the, the, the photo world, and I had like a couple of emails from somebody that was in like maybe what used to be the Brexit party or uh, something from some kind of slightly um, eccentric older woman, you know, like forcing their opinion on me, you know, kind of like, and this is another kind of modern world thing where people force their opinion on you and, and oh, tell yeah. you what you should be doing, which I just find. I've had that. Yeah. To be insane. Like I would never dream of like e messaging or emailing someone to tell them what to do or, or making a comment. It's yeah, just yeah. like, But if that, if that happens, I have the tendency, I have the kind of inclination. Okay. Would you like to go for a coffee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we can talk and I, I would love to talk to you more deeply about this and in, in a much more critical fashion and have a proper dialogue and you know that's when that's how you break those barriers yeah yeah but it, it, the problem is that you have to be open on both sides but yeah so you had this you had somebody you had somebody very loudly criticizing you in oh, an no, email. It, wasn't, it wasn't loudly it was it was just more that they were kind of writing about like really is almost like regurgitating the kind of the, the spiel that's coming out of the, the government at the moment, how like Brexit's a success and, you know, beer's really cheap and, and whatever. And, and that's it's all like, that matters. Yeah, it's all, you know, it's kind of like you can't point to anything that, you know, that, that was a success. I mean, just things like logistically, like my previous book, when you're posting into Europe, it was fine. You could just post into Europe. And now it's like a lottery with like people will get charged VAT, customs. I mean, it is seriously, as we know about, kind of like killed small businesses in, in the UK in terms of 
doing trade with Europe. So, I mean, you know, we're getting into politics now and, and you know, politics is, is at the core of it. But that, prov- just- that provides the context, though. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And I think that's important to have to to have at least some sense of understanding of the background against which bodies of work take their shape. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, um, and, and for me, there is anger there. There's anger, there's frustration. You know, my way of dealing with that is is to create something, is, is to make a work, you know. It's not to go on Facebook and rant because what does that do? You know, it just kind of projects back into a self-cyclical bubble of people that feel the same way and and it's you know for me this is kind of my way of i don't know kind of sharing how i feel i mean as a person i'm not particularly emotional but then it's interestingly the work i make is yeah. is quite emotional yeah it's, it's it's deeply emotional yeah there's no, there's nothing it's not rational at all you know, it's in that sense, it's not scientific, so to speak. That's what I mean. No. Um, but I wanted to mention another film that the work reminds me of, which is the 2009 film The Road by yeah. uh, John, Hill, John Hillcote. And the, f- the film itself is based on the novel of the same name by Cormac McCarthy, the American yeah. author. But aesthetically, there's a real... Yeah, that dystopian f- feeling is is very much apparent in the images. Sure, I mean I, I reference that more more literally with my series The Moor. Which yeah, is yeah, on, and that is uh, the Moor is um, published by another place. Another press, place press. Yeah, uh, <laughs> who, which is run by Ian Sargent, and that that was your first book, I believe. That was my first book in in two thousand and eighteen, and yeah, that was great. Ian's brilliant, and the the more I definitely use the road as a kind of not as a reference, but as kind of inspiration in terms of the the dystopian nature of the work, and and also the idea that you you find yourself in the the book and the film that these characters are existing in this dystopia, but there's no mention of what caused the dystopia or, or why they're there. They're just there and they're in this place. So I really took that that idea with the more. And I can remember when I was making the more, and this is when I was doing my master's, and I was taking these pictures, I was photographing on Dartmoor, and I was like arranging, I was finding people that I went to photograph, you know, that, that for me felt like they would sit in this sort of fictional dystopian future and all the time I was just like, can I do this? Is this valid? You know, like, I think this this is in a sense of imposter syndrome. It's just like, what is this? What, what am I doing here? You know, where does this work sit? You know, I, I couldn't really feel like I could point to something similar in, in terms of reference for, for, for that work. So I struggled a bit with that, but I really felt like, that was the, the the work I wanted to make at that point. And, and interestingly, coming out of that illness, for me, there was like a a, a lot of control in that work in, in terms of the, the images are very composed and very controlled. And I think that kind of bred out of my 
life experience really and and I've become a bit more sort of fluid and a bit sort of easier in in terms of how I I make work now so you've, that's what I wanted to ask you about actually was you've mentioned how you you've struggled to figure out where your work fits yeah and we've I've just come to my attention that the only two kind of visual references that I've raised during our conversation they're films what photographer well what photographers um have you drawn inspiration from clearly James Southam has been um somewhat of a a a very influential um mentor in your life but what what kind of what other visual reference uh, photo- photographic references have have been important for you? I think that's tricky because I tend to predominantly take reference from film, cinema, TV, literature, painting, not so much photography. But I think if we're going back in time, for me, it's almost like the 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 kind of the, the influences that are important are those that you experience when you're a bit younger. So it would have been earlier photographic references. So when I was doing my BA, those kind of formative influences, you know, so the American photographers like Stephen Shaw, um, the classics like Eggleston, Merowitz, um, Philip Lorca de Corsia, in terms of how he'd maybe compose some of the, the, the pictures or, or the the portraiture susan lipper so those mainly those those american photographers and and latterly i really enjoy buying and collecting photographic work and, and i enjoy looking at photographers work but i wouldn't say it's particularly influencing me mm-hmm. and i think it's tricky if it is influencing you because then your voice becomes too much like theirs so it's almost like i don't feel like i could have ever made this work when i was 19 years old like the the work i make now is born out of being in my mid-40s and having you know like a kind of half a lifetime of experiences and inspirations somebody sorry sorry um somebody recently uh used the word well I, I think similarly to you that I've got a similar attitude that you know that a lot of my influences are not photographic at all yeah and somebody used a a, a very interesting word recently to describe um my project as a photographer yeah and it was the um it was the word endogamic which okay. means marrying within your own tribe okay. and, and my work was not endogamic that was the point so okay. i guess the opposite of endogamic would be exogamic so yeah just i, I just thought that was it's interesting that your work or your your perception as a photographer has been influenced by well exogamous or yeah. uh exo yeah exogamous uh, materials you know yeah. you're you're not um, chained within your own within your own tradition and i think that's so important uh as you describe yourself as a 
or at least your Wikipedia describes yourself as uh, an artist hyphen photographer. So neither one or the other, but somewhat of a combination of the two. What 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 does what does artist photographer mean to you? Yeah, it's tricky. How do you how do you label yourself? I think like photography's such a broad spectrum, and you know, artists working with photography to, to me connotes something different. And <clears throat> you know, just going out on a, a limb and just saying artists always I always struggle with that a little bit. I don't know why. Maybe it's just I don't know. I just I kind of find it to sound pretentious, you know? I mean, if you meet someone, what do you do? I'm an artist, you know? It's like, I need to buy myself a blue smock and I don't know. That doesn't sit so well with me, so it's kind of like artist-photographer felt like a a healthy medium if I had to describe myself in in some way. Um, Just jumping back to the the influence in photographers, I can remember... Jem once said to me, he said, why do you always put your subject in the middle of the frame? I said, I don't, I don't know. That's just what I do compositionally. And, and he said, well, I always put my subject in the middle. So maybe that's something I learned subconsciously from Jem. You know, it's interesting in terms of when you're composing pictures and you're, you're framing things, but I always tend to put the, the subject in the middle of the frame. Yeah, it's how it's, yeah. But I mean, having been taught by Jem, um, you're very much rooted in in the British tradition. You you have a you have a firm place there now. Um, having been taught underneath him, but um, yeah, it's, it's it's been really interesting to hear about how 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 that event, that illness in your twenties, um, and the resulting sediment of experience has it has uh, shaped the the platform from from where you respond to the contemporary british landscape and by landscape i don't just mean the the landscape features or tracts of land i mean you know the the historical milieu that we find ourselves in and perhaps before we end our conversation what well i have two questions for you sure one is your perception of the british landscape to come um and the other one is is what what is the future for you personally let's say uh, let's speak to the the first question so um yeah how how do you see how do you how do you envision the british landscape to come it's hard to know, isn't it? I, I think quite often I tend to look back, and, and this is people like to do that. I mean, nostalgia is quite appealing. So, in terms of the, the the landscape to come, is definitely going to get far more political. You know, in, in terms of the actual geographical landscape and and the actual political landscape, both are in terms of. I suppose the the the, need, the want for people to to be here, to live here, more greenbelt land being built on for housing, or the kind of 
you know how the environment's being kind of destroyed by the the water companies are leaking sewage everything feels like it's becoming more political you know i I can't see like a, a turn back to something that feels more pastoral so it feels like we're heading in that direction what do you think um you know i i don't i don't, I don't know how, like... i don't know how dangerous it's going to become but yeah. um i do feel a real tension yeah and i do feel that there is there is an inability or there is there there's an increasing distrust between people who have different views sure which is ultimately the foundation of any healthy democracy yeah yeah and of course every democracy is flawed as they say but um you know i think that ideal of a society in which everyone um that commemorates that commemorates our differences uh, is is a is a really important one, um, and a really and, and a noble ideal to aspire to at least. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's a kind of great positive outlook. I think, like realistically, I think something's going to come to a head at some point, and then we just have to see what what emerges. But that's our fate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean. <laughs> You know, so in terms of like, yeah, so in terms of the landscape, my, my series Dirlscombe in some ways is looking back, but all, it's looking back at maybe what once was, but it's also incorporating yeah. how things are now. So it's, we, it's like a combination of, 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 of both of those viewpoints. But, you, you know, in terms of like how the landscape's changing, becoming more modernised, I don't know, like that maybe just doesn't, interests me so much so it's you know i've very much been led by my interests in terms of what i I photograph and what i feel is right but the romantics thought this too in the 19th century uh they were also very suspicious of you know the industrialization of their age you know poets like ruskin um painters like turner um i'm just thinking of british examples of, of of that period. Yeah. But uh they 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 had similar sentiments but within their within a different historical context and a set of different historical questions. But they they were also very um suspicious of the urbanization of the countryside and um the industrialization of the rivers. And I think Ruskin also wrote poetry that was critical of an expanding railway network. Um, yeah. And so um, when you say it's looking back to what once was, what period do you mean? So for Dilscombe. Which is, yeah, that was, uh, yeah. that's your imaginary town. That's my yeah fictional. Yeah, town. can you can you explain that for our, to make that clear for our listeners what this project's about before we? Of course, so, go so it's a project I've been working on for maybe seven or eight years, over quite a period of time. So photographing in mid North Devon in different locations 
and all what I would call real people that live and work in those places. So photographing with brushers who process thatch for thatch roofs, as an example. Um, but I've the, the only bit of fiction really is the the place name Dulscombe. So it's just a it houses all this work. And there's a lot going on, again, in terms of layers within the work. In terms of my family history, um, my kind of forebears were millers in Devon going back three or four generations. It's looking at how the, the landscape's becoming much more mechanised, like a dying kind of rural life. But to go to go to your point, in terms of looking back, it's maybe like sort of 19, it's very broad. It's, it's not like specific, but let's say 1960s back to sort of 1890s. And yes, there was a huge industrialization in terms of Birmingham and Manchester, but the countryside was still very rural. There wasn't a huge industrialization maybe some places in Dartmoor where it's tin mining and that kind of stuff but you definitely had this sense of I don't know it's a sense of people understanding place and for me there was an there was a rootedness an embeddedness a rootedness and 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 what I what I love is this the sense of patterns of life so, for example, the, the, the threshers that are using the wheat to, to make um, thatch for roofs, and then in the autumn they're using the leftover wheat to kind of stack in between the apples to make cider. Mm -hmm. So it's these patterns of life, and it's yeah. this. And there was a place for us within the landscape still. Exactly. And so exactly. There, was, there was something deeply ecological about our relationship to the land too. Yeah. We understood where things were coming from and, and going to. Sure. Yeah. And, when we, and, and we, we had that. We had that direct relationship. And in a way, people's worlds could be really small. You, you know, you could live in a small Devon village and for you to go to Exeter, you might do that once or twice in your life. You know, mm -hmm. it would be a huge kind of excursion. So, so our worlds were, were much smaller. And that kind of interests me. And, and then also this... Because my, my familial history on both sides is from the southwest. It's, it for me, it's kind of understanding myself and 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 why am I interested in the things I am interested in? You know, I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I'm kind of interested in this idea of what comes from the generations before. A sense you know, of belonging. A sense of belonging, Belo but belonging to a history. Yeah, but also, you know, definitely from like your parents, you can point to maybe similar interests or or you've got similar kind of, um, you, you do things in a similar way that there's that direct like DNA lineage. And, and also that is the same from grandparents. You know, my dad would often say, oh, well, you, you, you know, you're like your granddad, you know, but then what? How much does that impact from further back? Is that, you know, if you had like generations of your family working the land, does some of that then come down to me? That interest in the land, you know, mm -hmm. that could just seem like wild eyed speculation, you know, but what makes you you as a person? Is it just 
what you've experienced in your lifetime or is it what's come before? Yeah, but it's that kind of, it's that it doesn't really matter how or why or perhaps even what is true, but that it, but that it speaks that way of understanding the landscape in relation to the stories and the narratives that you've been told growing up in these yeah. landscapes. It's how you relate to those narratives that through which we draw out meaning from the world. Otherwise yeah. it's just this homogenous background that would never make sense, you know? So, um, whether or not it's inherit inherited in our DNA, physically speaking, or um, just through language itself, it's it's you know it's this multifaceted network of being, isn't it? You know, like there's no it's it's what matters is what speaks to us, sure. not how or why it's true, but yeah. how it speaks to us and how it resonates with us, yeah. and how it coheres with our understanding of the world. And yeah, go ahead. That, that's that's what interests me. And and that Dalescombe's really about that. So it's like I grew up in the Midlands and we occasionally had holidays in Devon and Cornwall, but but when I moved down here, I felt like I was coming home. And that's such a weird thing to have when you haven't grown up here, but I really feel like I belong here. So that mm. idea really interested me, and that is the kind of genesis really for, for that that Dalescan project. So with that idea of homecoming, uh, let us now address the final question I have for you, which is what is the, the immediate future for you personally? And um, yeah, what does it mean to be at home for you perhaps? Perhaps that's uh, now that you've found a place that, where you feel that you've come home. Yeah. What does that mean? And what does that place... What can that place right now tell you about your your future as a photographer? I'm at this point in my life. I'm kind of reasonably easily pleased, and my life history plays a lot into that. So when I was unwell, and I'd kind of lost the sense of hope in terms of like this is my life in a bed sit in the Midlands on benefits. So anything past that is amazing you know in terms of experience and we both feel you know we feel settled in Devon now we have a home we have a space we live in a small town you know I can see them more from the back garden we have a challenging back garden that I'm working in I'm enjoying all the trappings of midlife like gardening you know all the things I used to turn my nose up at as a angsty teenager so that's good I mean enjoying that and I'm just trying to always find my way with photography you know I always feel like an outsider I live outside I, I live in Devon I've probably always felt like an outsider most of my life so I just try to do what I enjoy try and make money somehow from from what I do and you know, as long as I can take pictures and I feel comfortable where I'm living in, in my life, then that's that's a blessing, really, and, and a real a real privilege. And one of your modes of income 
is um, you have the the privilege to teach others about your craft as well. Yeah, which, which is lovely, and that's been a part of my practice for a while. So, so when I was coming out of illness and 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 going into work, I started volunteering at an art center in Exeter, and then I got a job as a youth worker. So I did that for three years. And I left just before all the funding got pulled by the Tories and, and the youth service ended essentially in Exeter. But then uh, just after that, I, always, I wanted to set up like a group for young people to do a photography. And I set something up in 2012. And then that evolved into kind of a collective for, for young people in, in Exeter in the Southwest. And I, I ran that for, for seven years. And that was a a wonderful maybe one of the most rewarding experiences of my life and it's really lovely quite a few of the the, the youngsters that, that were involved they're kind of in their just past their mid-20s now so they're out in the world some are photographers some are doing creative and interesting things and it's really nice when they're back in Devon they'll be like they want to come and hang out with the old man and we go for a walk or something and, and, and have a chat so so that that has kind of fed in into my practice and then so it's you know it's lovely to be able to teach at university at Plymouth and interact with the students and help them with their work and then when I'm invited to go to other universities as well that's always really lovely and especially when the students ask for me to come and talk to them again that's just it's all a real privilege you know it's kind of it's you know it's great I mean I don't earn much money but you know you kind of have to pinch yourself a little bit that you know you're getting to do these things and you're getting paid for it i mean it's it's an amazing thing yes yeah, it's, it's the dream in a way isn't it, it is. yeah, yeah. Photographers. I mean, like, yeah yeah i mean there, there was a point i was fortunate enough to have like a a biggish commission from beeford and devon wildlife trust and this was kind of height of the the pandemic and so many people i knew were out of work because everything had shut down and i was just out in North Devon with the, the National Trust in like Watersmeet, which is a really beautiful valley, and they'd shut the whole road because they were felling these diseased ash trees. And I was just walking around and had the whole kind of reserve pretty much to myself. And I was taking these pictures and I just thought like, oh my God, this is like, this isn't work. This is like, you know, this is, you know, crazy. It just, yeah. So, so I have those moments, you know, where I just have to think and also remind myself of, how my life once was you know and 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 how it is now you know whenever i get frustrated it's like just you know think back and just you mm. know be content essentially mm -hmm. well as we come to the end of our conversation that's what's been so interesting to hear about that the way in which this this illness this stroke that you had when you were 22 um is very much still there when in your response to the the british landscape and you know the attitudes that you probably i'm sure you learned a lot from this experience um undoubtedly and the way that that weaves in and then also hearing about your other interests and your the cinematic references that we've spoken about and um yeah it's it's, it's really beautiful work and very striking work. And I would suggest to all the listeners that have made it this far 
that I've made it to the end. <laughs> I'm sticking to the end. Um, yeah. That you should buy Robert Robs, as he likes to be addressed, as he told me at the beginning. You should buy <laughs> Rob's uh, book, The Island. Uh, I think you said you have, just on Instagram, I think you said you had 60 copies left thereabouts. About 75 left now, which okay. is amazing because I printed a thousand copies and it's self-published. So again, it's like another thing that blows me away that I've managed to sell so many copies in, in just over six yeah. months. I can imagine having self-published it, how much of a struggle that must have been to to push those copies as well. So yeah. when you've got nobody behind you to do all the distribution. So that obviously just goes to show how well received this book has been. And again, I would suggest any anyone who's made it this far um, to pick up the book. And I'll, I'll have to get a copy from you as well. So we can arrange that after afterwards. So, um, but yeah, I could go on and on with the questions, Rob. <laughs> but oh, yeah, uh, um, uh, hopefully there will be another time for questions. I'm sure there will be. But uh, I would like to thank you for taking the time to speak with me this evening. And I wish you all the best in your future endeavours for now. The same. And thank you so much for the, the invite. It was lovely to, to talk to yeah, you. It was, it was my pleasure. So um, thanks again. If you enjoyed my conversation with Robert Darch, please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon by following the link in the description. Until next time, thank you for listening.